2: Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and I am here with my co-host, Patricia Kirkman-PK. How are you tonight? Absolutely fabulous. I've stayed inside out of the wind
0: all day, and we sure. have had a lot of wind. Woo! Incredible. Two days of it. Oh, Can't boy. wait for it to
2: slow down a little bit and get warm. It's a little bit yeah. today. Well, you're in they the right part of the country for it to get
0: warm, so good for you. Well, they, we had, they teased us with one warm day, and then it got cold.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. That's we fair. had a couple of days of warm weather up here in New England, and now it's going back down into the 20s overnight. So anyways, but spring is here, so happy to receive the spring. That's, Yay.
0: That is for sure. That is for sure.
2: We need the warm crazy. weather. My bones need the warm weather. So tell us, what's going on? You have something new to offer us tonight.
0: Well, we've been talking about different aspects of how we're affected by colors and numbers and such. And so I thought I'd give a little tidbit about colors themselves, because colors represent so many different things around us. And we've been talking about health and healing and other aspects. But colors affect our everyday life. And if you take a look at what a person wears, it really either lifts them up or pulls them down, what we call power colors. If a person wears red, that seems to be a power color and it's very beneficial for them. But you can use colors that make you feel good, even if it's a piece of jewelry or a scarf or something like that. It gives a whole different effect on how you feel of what's going on around you. You're gonna find that they're quite beneficial because colors represent numbers that we go through every day anyway. So on a one personal day, you want something that's a color that's at a power punch type, like a red. And if it's something you want to do for teaching, you would use the purples, because those are good colors for learning as well as teaching, very good at spirituality. So colors of learning and spirituality are definitely there. But green is an excellent color for healing. I'm talking about your emerald greens, your dark greens. They make one feel relaxed and very comfortable. So choose what works best for you. And you'll find that the color that seems to be important to you many times will go along with the personal year that you're in or the personal month or day you're in. So if you pay attention, you may be surprised at by choosing the color that works with your personal year, month, or day. It will work very well. So as a, just a little tidbit, the numbers 1 through 9, which is our days or weeks or years, 1 is red, 2 is orange, 3 is yellow, 4 is your green, 5 tan, 6 blue, 7 purple, 8 gray, and 9 is gold. So I'm going to put those on my webpage so that they'll be handy for those that are interested. Well,
2: but you'll find terrific. that
0: it makes a big difference of how you feel during a, if a specific day.
2: So if you feel down and want some help, use the red. never hurts. Yeah, that's great. And your website is com, And everybody can also reach PK uh, just from our website at supernaturalgirls.com. You can shoot her an email with any questions you have about colors and or numbers. absolutely. Definitely. As usual, we have great stories on our Facebook page, all well, kinds doing of UFO reports. Oh, my God. And you, PK, tell me about the Pentagon report that is coming out on June 1st. That was ordered, yes. I believe, by hey. President Trump. And we are very excited to see that, aren't we? <laughs> I think that's going to
0: be very interesting, providing the powers that be don't change our minds. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> exactly right, exactly right. I- so that'll be fun it. to see what they come yeah. up with and how they explain it on June 1st. Yeah, said,
0: again, one of the stations that uh, the UFO information is to be made known to us on the 1st of June. So we will yeah. see. Yeah.
2: We'll see. We're all waiting with baby breath, A ticket. Right. <laughs> they might just show up. Who knows? We're waiting for that mass landing. As long as it's friendly, we're we're there for it. Right? Definitely. Definitely. So I... I also wanted to share, uh, we've been getting some great feedback with the Grabavoy number sequences we've been giving out, and people have been requesting more of the money sequences, so Mm -hmm. I put together two things for everybody tonight, but first I want to share a story with you that was told to me by someone who used the immediate flow of money sequence, and she was supposed to get... A very large bonus, but the boss called her into the office and said, hey, I don't think anybody's going to get a bonus. I'm sorry to tell you. I'm not sure that anybody's going to get one this year. So she was working with this number sequence that we announced, <sighs> and I have to tell you what happened. She got a bonus, and it was double the amount. So, good for her. Good for her is right. And how I think about these numbers as I've delved more into this, it's more like a source code. So it's a whole other way of communicating. It kind of bypasses some of your own limited thinking, and it puts you right in touch with Source Energy. So tonight I'm going to share that code again since it's been requested okay. numerous times. <laughs> so for immediate flow of money, the number is 426499. Nine. Again, I should have said the number sequences. Here it is again, four. Two, six, four, nine, nine. Now, how you work with that is write it on a piece of paper. You can put it on a Post-it note, so it's on your computer screen. If you work with a computer, you're looking at it all day. Or you can put it under your pillow or in your wallet. You can also think the number in your mind. If you catch your mind running away with itself, not thinking productive thoughts, you can just use this number instead. And here's another one. This is a bonus number for everybody. It's a good luck talisman number. So if you would like good luck, you want to work with this one. It's a longer sequence. eight, one, seven, two, one, nine, seven, three, eight. And again, that's eight, one, seven, two, one, nine, seven, three, eight. So have fun with it. It's uh, These numbers are a lot of fun to work with. You're actually giving yourself a break from your normal crazy thoughts to just think of numbers anyways, so it can't hurt. Give it a try, and be sure to let us know if you have success. So, fun stuff. Tonight, Good deal. we have... Yeah, it's great stuff. Oh, and I have one more thing to announce. Next week, we are going to have Dr. Robert Weber on the show and we're going to be broadcasting at noon instead of our normal time because Dr. Weber is in Germany and he is on the leading edge of health technology. We are going to be talking with him about his inventions. There is a laser IV that is absolutely incredible in its scope and what it can do. A laser watch. There is also a treatment for the brain. Um, He has many, many different technologies, and they are all researched very thoroughly, and they're being used in Europe. They're now being used in the U.S. You may not have heard about them yet, so we're bringing him to you. Don't miss the show. Tonight we have an incredible guest. We are so honored to have this man with us. His name is Ralph Blumenthal, and he is the author of a great book that both P.K. and I just read this week called The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Now, this is a true story. It's all about Dr. Mack. I know we've had one other person on the show a couple of years ago talking about Dr. Mack. Now, he was an eminent Harvard psychiatrist and Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer. What a story to tell that we have tonight with Ralph Blumenthal. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Ralph. He's amazing. He's a distinguished lecturer at Baruch College of the City University of New York. He was an award-winning reporter for the New York Times from 1964 to 2009 and has written and co-authored seven books on organized crime and cultural history. He co-authored the recent series of groundbreaking Times articles on the secret Pentagon program to investigate UFOs. And he led the Times Metro team that won the Pulitzer Prize for breaking news coverage of the 1993 truck bombing of the World Trade Center. In 2001, Ralph was named a Fellow of the John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation to Research the Progressive Career and Penal Reforms of Warden Lewis E. Laws, The Man Who Made Sing Sing Sing. The book on Warden Laws, Miracle at Sing Sing, was published by St. Martin's in June 2004, and now we are blessed to have Ralph with us tonight to talk about Dr. John Mack. Ralph, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Patricia. Great introduction. I really appreciate it.
2: Well, wow, it's a well, thrill for us to have you here, definitely
1: well, it's a pleasure to to be with your listeners and to talk about john Mack.
2: Well, how did you get interested in dr. Mack? What was it that that brought you to his door?
1: Well, um you know i uh, from the way you uh, outlined my career, you could see that I really was involved in very uh, earth centered ground centered uh, stuff until then. I was uh, covering the organized crime and the mafia and uh, corrupt politicians and uh, the uh, Nazi war criminals uh, hiding from justice so uh, I had a lot of beats at the New York Times not connected to uh, UFOs at all Um, but in 2004 I was the New York Times correspondent in Texas Um, And I picked up a a used book, and it turned out to be John Mack's second book called Passport to the Cosmos. Um, I knew nothing about John Mack. I thought it was interesting. I read the book, um, and I was amazed that a Harvard psychiatrist would be researching alien abduction. So um, I said, gee, I'm going to call this guy up and talk to him. Uh, Maybe I'll interview him. And I was very naive. I had no idea how famous he already was. He already had been in the New York Times. He'd been on Oprah. Uh, he had uh, published one book before the book I read. He'd won a Pulitzer Prize writing about Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, so he was, he was really well-known. Um, um, but I thought I'd call him up and um, uh, see if I, I could do a story on him. Well, a few days later, I picked up the paper, and he was dead.
2: Uh, ah.
1: He'd been run over in London, uh, by a drunk driver. He was there for a conference on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. He looked the wrong way, as people do in London, as Americans do. And he was run over. And, uh, and that was that. So um, I called the family, and they were in, in deep grief, obviously. Uh, but eventually we got to talking, and they agreed to furnish me all his archives, uh, his uh, a- a- analysis tapes, uh, because as a psychiatrist he had to be analyzed a lot, Uh, his private journals, so I had access to a lot of his material. So that's the short version of the story, how I got involved.
2: Wow. Well, I have to say, both P.K. and I, after reading the book, felt that we really got to know Dr. Mack inside and out. I mean, you covered so much of who he was. And, of course, you're such a fabulous writer. I have to tell everybody, this book is just incredible. It's so well done. And it really it drew us both in. We were fascinated. Even though we already knew a little bit about Dr. Mack because of the show and, and another person we had on the show, you went into great depth. It was wonderful. Thank you for writing it. It's,
1: yeah. he well, was thank, a hero. You. thank you.
2: You're so welcome. And well, I know. find he
1: was a hero. Um, yeah, he was. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Harvard, uh, and you know, at one, I talk about this a lot in my book, uh, Harvard actually put him under investigation uh, because they didn't like uh, his, his method he was very enthusiastic he really uh, stuck up for the uh, ins- experiencers he he interviewed uh, he was a little too enthusiastic he admitted that uh, he was passionate um, but um, in the end I found he had a lot of courage uh, he he broke boundaries uh, he went places that uh, you know colleagues of his would not go uh he's he subjected himself to a lot of ridicule um so uh, he dealt with a lot but i think in the end he he accomplished something he didn't solve the mystery by the way <laughs> nobody has and probably or perhaps nobody will um yeah. it is um, you know as you as you know from your programs uh, it's it's a very very uh, puzzling enigma definitely it is yeah.
0: Definitely,
2: no question and, and also, from your book, it looked like, even though he was friendly with Bud Hopkins, that Hopkins wasn't all that thrilled with Dr. Mack because Dr. Mack often thought of this as an interdimensional experience rather than an extraterrestrial experience. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. I mean, we should probably tell, uh, maybe, maybe there's very few of your listeners who don't know the story of Bud Hopkins and John Mack yet, but Bud Hopkins was an artist uh, on Cape Cod uh, who had spotted a UFO back in 1964 and became interested in UFOs and started uh, meeting with experiencers and hip- learned hypnosis. So he became an expert in um, uh, in, in alien abduction uh, phenomenon uh, before John Mack. And uh, through a whole series of events, John Mack came to to, to meet him and Bud Hopkins showed him his material, and John Mack was blown away. But they eventually did diverge, as you as you noted. Um, Bud Hopkins was much more wedded to the idea that these were real occurrences that happened in you know in our reality, that the aliens were, you know, kind of evil and out to take uh, you know human DNA. He um, was very um, uh, focused on the reality of these events. And, and John Mack uh, increasingly came to doubt them as happening in our reality. They happened in some reality, in some dimension. They were real to the people who experienced them, but um, he, he he basically despaired of ever proving it. So that's where they sort of parted ways. But they reconciled at the end.
2: They did. That's good. Yeah. I mean, they both pursued this, and it and it took great courage. But. Especially Dr. Mack, because Harvard actually went after him, didn't they? They were going to censure him for this.
1: Yes, um, they did. um, Well, it happened after John wrote his first book called uh, Abduction, Human Encounters with Aliens, and uh, you can imagine that an academician who tackles a subject like this and has won a Pulitzer Prize will excite a lot of jealousy. From other colleagues, and um, so um, he he had his critics at Harvard, but um, they didn't like his enthusiasm. They thought he was giving Harvard a kind of a bad name, with um, you know the publicity he was getting. So they convened a secret committee. Uh, I call it an inquisition because it's a word that they used at one point to say what it wasn't. (laughs) They said, "John, this is not an inquisition," but it seemed to me. He, he, he took it as an Inquisition, and it had some of the earmarks of an Inquisition because it was secret, and it was designed to really um, uh, undermine him, um, so, uh, and, it was, and it was secret. I mean, there was no publicity on it, so he was questioned literally without the benefit of any public scrutiny, um, but, um, and they put him through the ringer. I mean, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. He had two crackerjack lawyers. But uh, And in the end, he, he prevailed. He was basically given a slap on the wrist and said, don't be so enthusiastic, which he agreed was, had been a problem. But uh, he was not really disciplined, and he went on to continue his research.
2: Wow, good for him. Because he, he did bring awareness to the dilemma for so many abductees or experiencers, whatever term you want to use, because there was no, and there still is, no upside. To sharing your story publicly.
1: Oh, that's right. I mean, uh, the experiences he ended up uh, uh, working with uh, had been to other psychiatrists before, and they were, were, you know, they, they were not satisfied. Some told them that they were mentally disturbed. Some told them, to, you know, just to forget about it. Some tried to give them drugs to cure their, you know, their traumas. But John really was the first one to listen to them and to take their account seriously and to, to think that there really was something to it. These people had been through some experience we don't understand, and that took a lot of courage. So um, in that sense, uh, he was really alone.
2: Yeah, yes. He really did stand alone at that time. And with the credentials that he had, too, he had a lot at risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, he risked his career. Obviously, uh, uh, he he was subject to a lot of ridicule. Um, His career was in jeopardy because uh, if the Harvard committee had, uh, you know, gone in another direction or been, uh, you know, decided that it would uh, try to take away his medical license or something, he could have lost his entire livelihood. Um, So uh, he he did take a huge risk. Yeah.
2: Yeah, he did. Now, um, he was also, he had his little human frailties, too, and he uh, he was very charismatic, right?
1: He was, uh, you know, he was charismatic to, to men and women. He collected a, um, a group of people around him who were very loyal to him, uh, probably more women than men, uh, because he just had that magnetic side to him that was particularly attractive to women. Um, but, uh, he was tall, uh, you know, bright blue eyes, good looking, uh, and loved to talk brilliant, you know, all the things that would be attractive to, to both men and women. And, um, um, he, uh, and you're right. He had his frailties, which I point out in the book because he was a human being. He wasn't a God. Um, he, he had his flaws. Um, and uh, something he had a, tra- a traumatic experience as a child when his mother died when he was eight and a half months old and that imprinted him a certain way uh, he was always searching for something and in some cases he was searching for you know romance outside his marriage uh, which which you know came to haunt him and he had a, a loving wife Sally who put up with a lot and he was very devoted to her but um, he um, Uh, He was always searching for something that he couldn't find. And that found expression, of course, in his search for, you know, intelligence in the universe.
2: Right. And his marriage ultimately didn't survive. It it was intact for some time, but then it came to an end. Yeah, he was
1: married uh, for 30 years. I mean, it lasted a long time. And as I said, um, he was not the kind of guy who skulks around and cheats on his wife secretly. Uh, Sally knew pretty much what he was up to. And he told her that he, you know, uh, was attracted to other women. He he did not treat her badly, um, and they actually they remained friends throughout their lives. And uh, she supported him uh, right to the end. I had an interview with her shortly before she died of cancer, and she was very supportive of, of John and uh, respected his work. Um, so, uh, you know, in that sense. Uh, um you know he ma- he 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 maintained her lo- he kept her loyalty and friendship uh through these difficult times
2: yeah that's something that are important a, that's yeah like, that's especially 'cause because they had children together so <clears throat> in terms of what you cuz you really have a great inside look at him what do you think he was um able to come to terms with about alien abduction. What do you think his thoughts and feelings were and his ultimate beliefs as far as he could take it? What do you think he was thinking about with all of this?
1: Well, um, you know, he was as incredulous as anybody, well, as I was, or anybody would be when he first stumbled across this. Um, his first reaction when people told him about Bud Hopkins was, uh, well, these people have to be crazy, and Bud Hopkins is probably crazy to deal with them. So he was skeptical, to say the least. Um, but um, the authenticity of the experiences that these people came to him with and the uh, affect, to use the you know psychiatric term, the, the way they handled themselves in their accounts of what happened to them The the crying and the weeping and the cursing and the uh, intense emotion that accompanied their accounts of what had happened convinced him that they were not making it up. So he comes, you know, he he confronts this um, impossibility. And, you know, early in the book, I have a quote from an English scientist of the 1870s who said he, he also had investigated the paranormal and was surprised at what he found. And he said, I never said it was possible. I only said it was true.
0: <laughs> oh
1: my! And that's a great
0: quote, right?
2: Great quote. And, well.
0: and uh,
1: you know, John Mack found the same thing. He said, this is impossible, what these people are saying. It, it cannot be true. Um, and yet it is true because there's no other possible explanation. They're not crazy. He said, I'm a psychiatrist. I know when people are mentally ill. They're not making it up because I'm listening to their stories and I know an authentic account when I hear it. Um, there was fragmentary evidence um, that remained very hard to um, uh, explain that some of these people had scars on their body they couldn't uh, remember ever getting. Um, so there were uh, you know, some damage to the Foliage outside where UFO, UFO reported uh, to have landed. And most interestingly, um, there were children as young as two years old who, you know, told stories like, you know, little man, take me up in the sky. Um, and these children, these young children were not reading books about UFOs. They were not going to the movies. Um, all they knew is what, you know, they what had happened to them or so they thought. So right. putting all these things together... John Mack had a confront that this was real um, on on some level. And, you know, he had trouble explaining it like anybody would. Uh, The Harvard committee kept saying, well, what is your proof? And he said, I really don't have the kind of proof you're looking for. I don't have an ashtray from a UFO.
2: Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh,
1: But, uh, but, uh, you know, putting all these pieces together. You ask, you know, how he ended up. I think he he definitely believed that something real had happened to these people uh, that he couldn't explain.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know there's a lot of discussion today about is it interdimensional or is it uh, extra, you know, otherworldly. And why can't it be both? I mean, that's that's been our thought all along. Why can't it be both? Yes. i absolutely is so right. And John advanced,
1: said the same thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, why why yes. does it, he? He would. Say, I think you took that those words exactly from John Mack's mouth because he would always say, "Why does it have to be one or the other? Why can't right. it be both?"
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, yes. There's there's so many aspects to these encounters, and they're not all the same. So yeah, why can't it be more than one thing? And he, I, I think he was absolutely right. To consider that but he gave so much I think hope to people that have had these experiences like you said he knew they weren't crazy he was a psychiatrist he would know if they were or they weren't and he was quick to say no there's no mental illness with these people
1: right and you know some of the people said to him they were disappointed after they met with him and they said gee you know dr. Mac uh, I was hoping you'd say I was crazy
2: uh, because that would be
1: e- that would be easier to accept than than what I had experienced was real because that was right. really the scariest thing. Uh, that when he said to them, no, you've been through something that we can't explain. But uh, I believe that uh, on some level of reality, this this actually happened. And then they got really scared <laughs> because yeah. they didn't want to believe that this thing had actually happened because it was so traumatic and so terrifying. Um but he was the first one, as you said, to give them a feeling of confidence that they could talk to somebody. You know, one reason that these people are not um, uh, faking it or carrying on a hoax is they don't want to tell these stories. They're not looking no. for an opportunity to get rich or to, you know, to, to, to uh, come out publicly. They're d- desperately afraid of what happened to them. Uh, and they only spoke to, to John Mack uh reluctantly and after a lot of soul-searching, and um, so, um, and he was the first one to say, you know, I'm glad you came to see me, and uh, I, I, I believe you've been through something that we don't understand, and, you know, he gave them confidence.
2: That's tremendous. Now, because you had access to all of his files, were you able to listen to some of the tapes of the abductees under hypnosis?
1: Um, I was uh, actually now one of the things I did not get uh, were his patient sessions uh, because okay. under uh, you know medical uh, procedures or under under legal uh, strictures, let's say, um, doctors are not allowed to share their medical records um, right. with with anybody but the patient. But uh, that said. Um, a number of the sessions he carried out, um, he he did um, talk about publicly afterwards because he had the consent of the people, and they became part of his um, um, you know public uh, demonstrations of the validity of this experience. So I talk about one case where uh, he actually uh, shared his research early on with a Harvard audience. And this was really before he had nailed it down. It was a little too early. But again, as I say, John was kind of impetuous. And as soon as he heard about this phenomenon from Bud Hopkins, he, wa- he was rushing to tell people about it. So one of the things he did was he, he gave a lecture at Harvard um, where he had an experiencer who agreed to appear with him um, and he had uh, another experiencer on tape um, uh, during a session with him. He did not identify her by, by her full name, but she was explain she was not explaining. She was going through this horrible ordeal of having her pregnancy removed by alien beings. It, it, right. although that's how she remembered it. And she was crying and screaming and cursing and you can't do this, and um, she, she was feeling, you know, weeping. And um, and anyway, John played this tape for the Harvard audience, and it was hair-raising. I listened to it. Um, and uh, it is uh, frightening to hear her recount. He, she's reliving the experience, actually. Um, yeah. So uh, to answer your question, I, I did hear in quite a number of these tapes, and some of the experiences went on. Programs like Oprah, with John, and they told their stories themselves.
2: Yeah, it's um, that's what I was going to ask you. You answered my question already. Is how did you feel when you heard it? And yeah, some of these encounters that was as the abductees or the experiencers are going through it. It is racing. You called it perfectly. I mean, there's no question that these people went through something very traumatic, out of their control
1: right now there is another aspect to this that's important uh, because uh, granted the experiences were often uh, extremely traumatic when uh, women had their eggs taken for example and men had sperm taken on the ships and um, they had all kinds of medical examinations done which were terrifying Um, again this is the account of the experiences sometimes consciously sometimes under hypnosis but the accounts were, were terrifying. But on the other hand, John was the first one to see that there were um, other aspects to the uh, experience where the uh, abductees or experiencers felt uh, close to God. They identified with the, with the aliens. They felt um, uh, love for them. They were uh, – they felt uh, – that they had been given a a, a mission to, uh, you know, uh, improve the planet, to fight against pollution, um, uh, you know, to fight against war and nuclear weapons. Um, so they felt that they had been uh, given a task, many of them said afterwards. So it wasn't just trauma. And, and that's what made John differ from some of the other researchers who who didn't find those messages or didn't think that they – amounted to much but john always thought that there was another a transformational aspect to these experiences
2: and he was big into his own transformation wasn't he he was very interested in all kinds of consciousness experiences
1: yeah i mean he was the least likely to uh, you know to, to end up where he ended up i mean he he made a point I'm saying he was brought up in a secular German-Jewish household. His parents were both professors. They were not interested in spiritual things particularly or superstition. Um, uh, they were very materialistic about, you know, science uh, being the explanation for everything. Um, and uh, through a series of steps, um uh, John became more spiritual and at the end he was really open to experiences. He, uh, you know, he went, uh, it wasn't just alien abduction that was interesting to him. He was uh, into um, um, the Holy Grail legend. He was into uh, Viking runes telling the future from these Viking stones. He was into uh, crop circles he investigated and ultimately uh, life after death. Uh, he was very interested in what happens after death. So he did go on this spiritual journey, um, and I sort of, out, in, the, in the book, I outlined the steps um, that he took. What really got him going, by the way, what changed his life, was uh, his experiments with the holotropic breathing. Um, he went out to Esalen and uh, worked with a psychiatrist named Stan Groff, who had developed this way of, of uh, achieving alternate states of consciousness by regulated breathing. And uh, the, the John tried this and blew him away. He, he sort of thought he remembered an early li- early uh, previous life where he was a, uh, in Russia, in medieval Russia, and the Mongols were decapitating his son. He thought he remembered yeah. that, or at least that that kind of memory came to him. And he remembered how awful he felt when his mother... Uh, died suddenly at eight and a half months, and he remembered being in the birth canal and being pushed out and you know all these things came to him um, or oh, so he thought i mean this is his account of, of what he re- what he remembered going through with the breathing and yeah. um I have a quote in the book uh, that um I always liked he said um, um, he said that the the uh, you know, ex- experiment, breathing experiments in Esalen, put a hole in my psyche, and the UFOs flew in.
2: Oh, that's good. <laughs> that's good. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm familiar with that bre- kind of breathing, holotropic breathing, because when I was a therapist, we used it, and uh, at that time, it was renamed rebirthing. So oh, people because, had yeah. amazing, yeah, amazing experiences mm-hmm. with holotropic. Breathing, I I saw tremendous things happen uh, with that encounter at, with breathing, and people would actually remember their birth or, like you said, it's what they think right. is happening. But I've also had experiences of people doing that kind of breathing, and the room fills up with anesthesia. Come to find out, if huh. you look at the person's birth records, you will see that the mother had tremendous amounts of anesthesia throughout the birth oh process. So, huh. yeah, there's a lot... A lot to that, and it's it's amazing. He was uh, as fascinated by it as actually as we were. It was, it's a pretty powerful technique. You just have to have the right people to work with when you're doing it. Right. But um, just a, he he really was ahead of his time in so many ways. And and what you describe is a very strong leader, but with a heart. I mean, he really had a big yeah, heart, didn't he? he
1: he really did. And, uh, I mean, he started, I have a section on his early career and how he distinguished himself to his uh, Harvard colleagues. And one of the things he did early on was he helped establish uh, mental health care in Cambridge, which was then a kind of a, a backwater of Boston down and out really downtrodden place, very poor with no mental health services, no services for the poor. And he established an outpost of, uh, Harvard Medical School in Cambridge, and I have a section there where he um, really, a, a woman came in who was disheveled and mentally ill, and she wanted uh, uh, electric shock therapy. She was in awful shape, and he talked her down, and he uh, made, you know, reached out to her, made contact with her, and everybody was you know, slack-jawed watching him uh, you know, make contact with her, and uh, Um, it just turned her into a different person. I mean, it was just an amazing demonstration. He had that quality, which uh, he used in his own family. He had three sons, and Mm -hmm. uh, the the sons, you know, were getting into all kinds of mischief and ganging up on each other and fighting, and and he would, um, study his own sons and uh, try to understand what was going on. He wrote a, a long paper on his sons, um. And um, he just uh, really was very good with people. He had great people skills, which, as you know, is in short supply in medicine.
2: It certainly is. (laughs) True. Goodness. So he was very unique. And now his his death. You you've written you wrote about that obviously and what happened and as you described he. He was killed by a drunken driver. But there was another story I have to ask you about. And I don't know if it's true, but it was told to us that there was another man in London with the same name who was also hit by a driver. They didn't say a drunk driver, just a driver, and who was also killed. Have you heard that?
1: You know... I heard it, but uh, I pretty much debunk that because, I mean, maybe it's possible. I I don't know all the history in the whole world of every John Mack, you know, who might have gotten run over. But uh, the idea that he was in any way singled out, uh, I pretty much, uh, you know, uh, knocked down because I I went through the police reports very carefully um, and studied the witness accounts of the accident. And I know who ran him over. Um, oh, okay. It was a, a, ch- a charity worker who had had too much to drink, and he was examined at great length afterwards. Um, the Mack family, actually, the sons uh, spoke up for him that he shouldn't be um, jailed afterwards because they felt so compassionate for him. He was just a poor soul who, uh, you know, John Mack stepped in front of his car and, and was killed. So uh, uh, there, there was not anything I could find to the story that, that he was singled out. Um, but there were uh, paranormal experiences surrounding his death, which I talk about in the book.
2: Yeah, uh, tell including... us a few of those. Those were fascinating.
1: <laughs> those are real fun. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, there's one story. Uh, one story. <laughs> um, one story I tell. John had a an associate at Harvard uh, named Wesley Boyd, a younger man who listened to his lectures and became a great. Um, follower of John's and John was very supportive of him. And, um, when John went off to London to the, um, uh, Lawrence conference, um, this, this, uh, fellow, this other fellow Wesley Boyd went off to, um, Russia on a conference. His wife was speaking. His wife was also a doctor. And while he was in Russia, he was in a cab and he looked out of the cab and he saw a guy getting run over. Uh, and the cab driver, his cab driver, you know, didn't stop, just kept going. But some, you know, he, he just saw it out of the corner of his eye that some other driver ran over somebody in the street, ran him right down. And he he was very disturbed at having seen this. Uh, and later, it turned out, it was about the time John was run over in, in London. Oh my. Um, and that's what freaked out Wesley Boyd later. Uh, you know, was there a connection between the two in terms of, you know, some... You know what Carl Jung would call a synchronicity. Or, I mean, what what was behind that? Um, so that was one very strange thing. Um, yeah. And then um, at the end of the book, I say uh, there's some stories I heard uh, after uh, from people that after he died, John Mack appeared to them. And I said I make a whole point of saying, look, I'm not vouching for these stories the way I vouch for other things in the book. These are these are anecdotal stories of people who claim to have seen, you know, John Mack appear to them after he died, but they're valid only in that uh these people it was a powerful experience for these people. Right. So, um I tell the story if you want to hear, you know, one of these yeah. stories. Please, um,
0: definitely. Uh, I you. Okay.
1: Um, So John had gone on a a crop circle trip uh, shortly a few months before he died. He went to England and investigated crop circles, and he felt very uh, close. I mean, he thought they were very real. Um, He felt the tremendous energy coming out of them. Uh, He thought they were not man-made, that they must have been made by uh, some other force in the universe. Um, So he... um, so. um, He'd gone on this trip with a number of, of colleagues, and uh, after he was run over and, and killed, uh, one of the women who was on the crop circle trip with him said she had a dream. Um, and in the dream, uh, John Mack appeared to her, and um, he said, um, uh, "Hi, you know, let's go to lunch." And she said, "Well, you know you're dead." And he said, "Of course."
0: So they're going <laughs> to a
1: restaurant. And they're sitting on a banquette, and he's wearing a short sleeve shirt, which he often wore, kind of a, uh, you know, short, dorky, short sleeve shirt. And their arms touched on the banquette, this woman and John, and she felt tremendous heat emanate, emanating from his body. And she said, John, you're burning me. And he said, that's so you'll know I'm real.
2: Ooh. <laughs> Great.
1: So, wow. Oh. So Yeah, that's uh, amazing. You know, that that's one story, and there were others, and, and maybe the best one of all I used to end the book, I hope there's not a spoiler alert, but um, uh, I'm not giving anything away, really. I'm kidding. But um, John had a colleague named Roberta Colasanti who we worked with very closely. She was a social worker. She supported him very closely. And um, after he was killed... Uh, She was sitting with somebody who turned out to be a medium, and he said, uh, quite surprisingly, uh, you know, John is is sitting here with us, and she was surprised to hear that, and then the medium said, and I have a message from John for you, and she said, yes, and the medium said, what John is saying is, it's not what we thought. Hmm. So she said, wow, it's not what we thought. What, what is not what we thought? But she couldn't question him because he was, a, a, you know, it was a spirit who was coming through the medium and there, there was no way to ask him, John, could you explain what you meant? So right. she didn't know what he meant. What, what was not what we thought? So um, a little while after that, her husband died of cancer. Uh, Roberta's husband, and uh, he also appeared to her um, uh, through a medium, and he said he had a message for her, and the message was, "It's not what we thought."
2: Oh, my God. And so she
1: said, "Again, you know, what's not what we thought? Is it is it death? Is it you know uh, alien abduction? Is it, what is it?" But she she again she couldn't question, you know, the the statement. There was no way to. Get, get an amplification so i end the book on that ambiguity you know what is anything what we thought
2: yeah good question
1: yeah i mean uh it, it it's a mystery uh but um you know what i like to say is that at least through this whole experience of writing the book and and all of john's uh, investigations i think we've made some progress in 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 what is not uh, what we can say this experience is not Yes.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. and it's
1: not mental illness. It's not insanity. It's not delusions. It's not uh, the madness of crowds. It's not uh, fabrications. It's not hoaxes by and large. I mean, yes, there have been hoaxes one of which I talk about in my book, uh, but all these accounts of people from all corners of the world, all walks of life, um, have a consistency to them uh, that argues for some kind of authenticity. So we know what it isn't. We don't know what it is, but we know what it isn't. And that, I think, is is progress.
2: It really is. I agree. I think it is progress. And, again, you've made a, a, beautiful, uh, a beautiful case here for people to consider that. And, again, I want to tell everybody the name of the book, again, is The Believer. Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Now, in your book, you say that John wouldn't have liked that title. Why is that?
1: Yeah, I've I've, uh, actually gotten some pushback from uh, uh, friends of his, uh, which I entirely understand, um, until I explain it to them, uh, because, uh, as you know, uh, believer is a kind of uh, pejorative description of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, it means that they're naive or gullible or that they're, you know, preordained to just accept things without examining them. So, you know, to call somebody believer is not necessarily necessarily flattering. And um, and John himself, when he was asked uh, many times in interviews, uh, you know, do you believe in this stuff? And uh, he said, don't call me a believer because uh, I'm just following a trail of evidence, Um, the kind of evidence that gets people convicted in court, you know, circumstantial evidence. So don't call me a believer. So I took the provocative step of calling him, I'm calling him and calling the book The Believer, because as I explained at the end, I think he did believe in things like social justice, in cosmic consciousness, um, in... uh, uh, universe intelligence in the universe he believed in breaking boundaries he believed in being courageous you know he believed all these things that helped him cope with um, the ridicule that he was facing so I said in that sense he was a believer and uh, and then I say um, um, you know Joseph Campbell's uh, the hero's journey had yeah. specific steps Um, the hero, it starts with a call to adventure. The hero is called on a task that he doesn't want to go on, like Jonah in the Bible. You know, Mm -hmm. God sends him on a a mission he doesn't want to go, but he finally is persuaded to go against his better judgment. He goes, he has a lot of adventures, he risks his life, um, he goes through, you know, hair-raising encounters, and then he triumphs and comes back with a gift for humanity. And the gift in this case, I think, is is the knowledge that he brought, uh, you know, humanity of of what he had investigated and what he had found. Um, And and then I take the opportunity to say, uh, you know, we, right, uh, you know, torment us, you know, these stories of abduction and they... You know, they may fly circles around our aircraft, and do what we can't do. But uh, in the end, it's it's human beings who investigate encounters. Human beings like John Mack. Um right. So you know, let's hear it. Let's hear it for us humans. You know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's right. So I think. Uh, so I said, you know, John was human. I mean, human in many ways. He had his flaws, like all humans. But uh, he really uh, was the best of the human species.
2: He really was. He took a stand for what he believed in. He helped a lot of people. He opened up a lot of minds. He took on Harvard and won. And, yes. oh my goodness, just an amazing person. Um, and,
1: and um, you know, the, the, um, at the end of his life, he was interested in the ultimate mystery. I mean, I guess uh, when you think about it, there's two great mysteries in the universe, uh, the two greatest mysteries. One is, are we alone? And the other is, what happens after we die? I mean, those Mm -hmm. are the two biggies. Right. So, um, and maybe the biggest one of all is what happens after we die, because uh, that concerns everybody, and everybody's worried about it. And whether we're alone in the universe would be nice to know, but it's not quite as important as what's going to happen to me when I die.
2: That's right. (laughs) So, uh,
1: So he was very interested in that. And that was his last um, project. He was writing a book on Elizabeth Targ, uh, who was the daughter of uh, Russell Torg, the Russell. remote viewer, you know, the great uh, he had a CIA contract to study paranormal uh, powers. And, uh, and Elizabeth, his daughter, was uh, equally gifted, and um, she was investigating the power of prayer, a uh, brilliant woman. Um, and she developed the same kind of cancer. She, cancer was, she was um, uh, you know, t- investigating. She was investigating uh, geoblastomas, and she developed oh. the same kind of cancer. What are the oh, chances no. of that? Oh, no. And
2: um, one of the worst so, uh, ones.
1: Terrible. And uh, she tried all kinds of, you know, uh, holistic treatments, and everything failed, and she died. And she, uh, according to her circle, reappeared afterwards with uh, um, uh, signals from the beyond and uh, uh, messages. So John was writing a book about her, uh, trying to, and he'd sent the proposal around. Um, and by the way, you know, um, uh, her, her mother, her brother was um, Bobby um, um, the chess prodigy, Bobby Fisher. Um, the chess genius. And uh, her mother, yeah, um, her mother, um, Elizabeth's mother and Russell's first wife was the one who taught Bobby Fischer chess.
2: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So she came
1: from quite a, royal, you know, psychic royalty. Um, She sure did. But John, uh, so John was writing this book about her uh, which he was trying to sell right when he went to London and got run over. Uh,
2: um,
1: so uh, he was investigating life after death himself, uh, which makes these stories of his you know reappearance um, after he died so much more uh, interesting and funny Can you prove it? You know, is there any proof of this? Of course not. Um, but you listen to the stories uh, that are told by people around John. And um, uh, and they are as extraordinary as the experiences stories.
2: Right, they are. They are definitely. Well, let me ask you also, Ralph, because you were part of a team that went on a uh, went out on a big ledge here. In my opinion, I think this was great because you reported on the secret Pentagon program to investigate UFOs. How did that
1: come about? It came about, it was completely independent of the book. I was working on the book in 2017, uh, but quite independently of that, uh, Leslie Kane, a colleague of mine, a writer who's written a wonderful book about UFOs, and now she has a six-part Netflix series called Surviving Death, which is on Netflix. Oh, yes,
2: that's a good one. She wrote a
1: book, yeah, Surviving Death, so she's been, uh, she was a UFO investigator, ger- investigative journalist investigating UFOs, and more recently she was investigating um, uh, afterlife experiences. Anyway, uh, so she was a colleague of mine, and she heard about um, a, uh, a Pentagon office that was secretly investigating UFOs. So she went down to Washington and uh, met a, a guy who turned out to be Lou Elizondo, who was the head of this office. And he told her, and a few other people, uh, that he was resigning. Uh, well, that he had been the head of a Pentagon office called AATIP, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. It was a mm-hmm. secret Pentagon program to investigate UFOs, uh, founded in 2007 with $22 million from Harry Reid, Senate Majority Leader, um, that he had been running this office for, you know, 10 years or so, And he was resigning because he wasn't getting enough support from the government. (coughs) So Leslie heard about all this, and she confirmed it with him and and other people. And we had a great story. She came back, and we went to the New York Times and said, wow, you know, nobody knows about this Pentagon office. It's secret, but not only does it exist, but the the head of it is resigning. And uh, by the way, they have videos of Navy uh, pilots encountering objects. Right, they sure do. You know, uh, know, we had the videos uh, that we put out on the New York Times website. We had the story of the Pentagon uh, office. We had Lou Elizondo's account. So uh, I must say it was was a great story. I mean, um, and the Times editors uh, who were very supportive, uh, um, after we came in with everybody was on the record, there were no anonymous sources. I mean, this was not – you know you know um first of all the program was not classified so we did not break any laws to disclose it it was not mm-hmm. uh top secret it was um it was in the public domain but it just wasn't known if it had been classified we would have had a lot more trouble you know telling oh, the story yeah. because we would have been in a risk anyway luckily it was not a classified program um although some of the things they were dealing with are classified and we haven't been able to get our hands on that. Um, But we knew that they, that they had documented these encounters, which was really interesting. We had the Navy videos. And um, so the times said, sure, we'll put it on the front page on a Sunday. It caused a, you know, got a huge reaction. Um, And we followed it up with some other stories that, you know, amplified on, on it uh that we interviewed some of the pilots on the record who encountered these things some of which were going in the water by the way um, they operate underwater yes. as well as in the uh-huh. sky mm-hmm. as you know um yes, we do. so uh yeah um so uh yeah so that's been a, a great chapter and you know Leslie and I are continuing reporting we're looking for you know new information and uh we're uh, we're on it
2: so you're still looking at digging further into this then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a lot
1: wonderful. To, there's a lot to say. Yeah, there's a lot to say, but um, it's difficult because, as, as I said, a lot of the material is, is classified, um, and uh, people don't want to talk. People who are on active duty in the military do not want to talk. But what what is positive, what is good, I must say, is that for the first time now, uh, the, the the military has put out the word to uh, Navy pilots and Air Force pilots that you're not going to jeopardize your career if you report these incidents.
2: Um,
1: you know, it used to be that um, the, the word was out: do not report, you know, UFO sightings. You'll you'll have to go to the you know the, the psychiatrist. Uh, um yeah. But now and it, won't uh, they are, you
2: know, <laughs> it won't be John Mac. It won't be John
1: um, it'll end your career. They basically said, this will end your military career. Sure. But now, and, and by the way, air, uh, um, um, commercial airline pilots were told the same thing. You know, do not report these sightings because uh, your license will be pulled. Oh, And, they were, wow. and they, were, they were citing these things all the time. I mean, commercial pilots, if you talk to them privately, they'll say, oh, we see these things all the time. We encounter these things, and we don't know what they are. Um yeah. So they're anyway, a bomb
2: and faster.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh the well remember the incident about 2 weeks ago, 3 weeks ago, American Airlines yeah. pilot over Mexico. Right. Um, uh uh-huh. he, he calls down to the ground and he says, "Are you guys uh, firing off missiles down there?" No. Why?
2: <laughs> oh, one just
1: flew over us.
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> right.
1: So uh, and that, and that um, transmission came, came out. I mean, it was public. Uh, it was amazing, the, the, the uh, transmission to the tower. So uh, now, not only do commercial pilots, uh, you know, uh, are, are they encouraged to report these things, but uh, even more important, military pilots uh, are, are making a record of these encounters.
2: Now, what do you make of all this? Because this is a definite change in policy.
1: Well, I'll tell you what I don't make of it first, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I don't think it's a a deep, dark conspiracy to uh, unveil the, the secrets. I don't think that somebody decided, okay, folks, now is the time for disclosure, and we're going to start this way by dribbling it out. I I don't think that's the case because I know how hard we worked to get the story out. So I know that Mm -hmm. it wasn't fed to us uh, as part of some grand plan. Um, I do think that um, more and more people in the government, I mean, the, the government has always been interested in this. We know that from all the files we've looked at. People in the Air Force and people in the Navy have always been interested in UFOs Even when they shut down uh, Blue Book in in 69 and said, there's nothing to see here, folks, um, we know that was not true.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: Right. So the government was continuing to be interested in the people in the government knew that there was something. They didn't know what these things are. I'm not saying they knew they were alien, that they're off-world or anything, but they knew that there was a lot of things that could not be explained. They're not ours. Everyone seems to agree on that. They are definitely not ours. They're probably not or almost certainly not our adversaries because they don't have that capability. It would shock everybody in the military to find that the Russians or the Chinese or anybody else has this capability because it does not seem possible that they have that. Uh, So that's – but that's about all they know. They don't know where they come from. They don't know what they are. Um, who's, you know, running them, uh, nothing, but they know that they exist. And as a matter of fact, uh, I think the big contribution that we made, you know, the, with the New York times story, the first one was that we, we established that the government now knows these things are physically real. You know, they're not spiritual, uh, you know, uh, uh, manifestations, they're not, um, uh, you know, um, it, it, un, uh, what, what's the word, they're, they're not formless things that show up on radar, they're not images from the mind, you know, there were all these theories that they were some kind of um, spiritual, you know, uh, things that had no substance. They have substance. They're real. They are physically real. They're caught on radar. They're caught on imaging equipment. Um, so that's a big step. They are real. We don't know what they are beyond that, but they are real, and they exist.
2: That's Yes, so that's some progress. And But there's a whole PR campaign going on there, renaming it. Instead of UFOs, now yeah. they're using UAPs. So, <laughs> I mean, there is something happening in that machine that is, presenting a, a new way of talking about it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think they are. Uh, um, the curtain is being lifted. I think you're right about that. Uh, it's absolutely right that they don't like the word UFO. They gave it this fancy new name, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, Phenomenon, Phenomena, <coughs> plural, um, because they think have just like they won't call them flying saucers anymore. Uh, right. Then it became UFOs. Now they're UAP. I don't know what the the next name is going to be, but um, I think I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that there is um, a, a realization that they've got to be co- be more forthcoming, and it's it's not an easy transition for the government because for so long, not only did they deny officially deny this, but there was a lot of disinformation circulating. Yes, there was. Uh, yes, the government put out a lot of false reports and. Uh, Uh, You know, we know documents have been falsified so that they're partly true and partly fake by our own government um, Uh to throw people off the track. um, And it makes it very difficult for researchers because you come up with a document and it looks authentic and it has all the markings of official, you know, documents. And yet we're, we're now told that, well, there were different things written into it to mislead people. So it completely casts a cloud over this field, and all the wonderful researchers who dug out these documents and said this proves this, this proves that, uh, now uh, are clouded by doubt.
2: Right. Yeah, There, there's, there is a lot. I guess the cloud is the best way to, to describe it, and it's a dark cloud because a lot of experiencers even that have come forward have been affected in a very negative right. way, by, by different disinformation techniques. Right. So that's been very unfortunate for for all of us because we've missed a lot of information due to that technique right. that they've People been using have been discredited. For so many years.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're right. People have been discredited, and um, it's very hard to separate truth from fantasy, so it all looks phony. And um, if the government had been helpful in the beginning... Uh, I think it would have been a lot different. But um, for, you know, whatever reason, the government decided this was a big threat. The American people could not be trusted with this information. Uh, we've got to muddy the waters. And uh, as a result, we're, we're in a fog.
2: Yeah, we we still are to some degree. But I know uh, one of the guests that we had on the show was an ex-FBI guy, and, and he said at this point he was told that, uh, they're not going to deny any of this anymore because too many people have cell phones with cameras. So exactly. It's, exactly. it's overwhelming, yeah, because, you know, people post them on social media. Here's the UFO I saw last night, et cetera. Yeah. And there's no way that the government can manage and keep a lid on all of that anymore. Everything's
1: right, and that's very different. Yeah. I mean, that's very different from what John Mack contended with. I mean, remember, uh, a lot of his research goes back to the very beginnings of uh, of the Internet and social media. So yeah. it wasn't that popular to have, you know, cell phones and cameras. And actually, people who try to take pictures, uh, they set up trip wires in their bedrooms uh, to catch, you know, the aliens at work. And for some reason, um uh, they, they never could. I mean, all these, the photograph, the photographic evidence is very thin. Um, it's, it's not robust as John Mack kept saying, it's very fragmentary. It's, it's um, um, less than what anybody would want in terms of, you know, actual photographic proof. UFOs are different. I mean, UFOs have been photographed. They've been, you know, captured on film um, to a much greater degree than uh, alien beings. They just are not mm-hmm. <laughs> good pictures of alien beings. And right. all the That's things that have come out are, are just, uh, you know, uh, the alien autopsy and all that stuff. It's uh, just not convincing enough to, to to real scientists.
2: Yes, exactly. Now, and when you were digging through this story about the Pentagon program, was there anything that you saw that you thought was really unusual, remarkable, or anything that that really startled you?
1: Well, I don't want to talk about it too much because we're still looking. But there are many aspects to this um, that uh, are, I mean, there's questions about materials, for example. You know, what does the government have? Um, You know, where is it? Uh, You know, how much is it? I mean that's obviously one question, and and all that stuff is highly classified. It's very hard to get, but uh, that's really as far as I want to go. Um, okay. w- you know where we're going in the future on this is something I'm not
2: comfortable discussing. I understand. I had to ask though. Breaking <laughs> <laughs> right. you know. <laughs> right. You're not so different from John Mack because you are in uncharted waters here. And actually, in the book, you talk about how your families kind of cross paths in certain ways.
1: Yeah, you know, that, that, uh, really interesting. Uh, I early on came across the concept of synchronicities, uh, you know, these strange connections between seemingly random events. Um, and um, it kept coming up in, in this book. Uh, for example, uh, I was a student at City College of New York, when John Mack's father was a professor there. I knew his wow. name, I didn't have him for a course. He was a professor of English, I was an English major, so he was there, um, and um, so that was one thing. Uh, next, uh, um, John, when John Mack's mother died, when he was eight and a half months old, his father remarried shortly afterwards, and he remarried a woman um, who became a, a professor Uh, And a pretty well-known economist. And and now that I'm at Baruch College working in the archives, I'm a distinguished lecturer there, and I work in the archives on historical collections. Uh, One day, not long ago, I came across a file uh, marked with uh, John Mack's mother's name, Ruth Mack, uh, his stepmother. Um, She had done uh, some research, and it it found its way into a collection. I was archiving. So, you know, uh, what are the chances of that?
2: Yeah. And then
1: um, I was trying to track down a cousin of John, Max, uh, because I needed family uh, history and biography, which I couldn't get from his papers. I needed some personal stories about you know grow, his growing up and all that. So I was searching for a cousin of his. And I searched all over, and I found him across the street where I was living. <laughs> he was living <laughs> was in the next funny. in the next building. Um, oh, my and I I crossed the street and went over to meet him. Um, and he told me stuff. And by the way, this is an interesting story. This cousin um, uh, who was related to John Mack's birth mother. Um, oh, my God. Uh, that, that, that family uh, developed Rheingold beer. So the famous beer in New York. You know, my beer is Rheingold, the dry beer. You know, if you're a certain age, you know that jingle. I was a very yeah. famous, It was the number one beer in New York. Uh, that family, John Mack's mother's family, uh, developed Rheingold beer. And um, <laughs> they came, it was a pretty prominent family. So um, all that stuff, sort of, you know, these connections kept coming up. And it made me think that, um, once again, uh, I realized that um, uh, writers don't choose their books. The, the books choose the writer. Uh, I think there's something, you know, very zen-like going on that, you know, writers don't sit around saying, what will be the topic of my next book? Something happens that sort of pushes the book into their consciousness. And just like I came across that book by, you know, Passport to the Cosmos, just like I came across that book in Texas that got me started on John Mack when I was, you know, I wasn't thinking of doing another book. I You know, I I wasn't thinking of UFOs, nothing. But this, you know, sort of impinged on my, on my world suddenly, so that's what happens.
2: Well, again, you you are a similar to him because he took on Harvard, but you took on the mafia. You both share a sense <laughs> Which of Which is the most dangerous? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I would. I don't want to compare myself to him because he had a much harder job uh, because. Um, Uh, He was just on a level way above me intellectually and, you know, in personality and psychically. But, uh, uh, you know, I uh, follow stories that came my way as a New York Times reporter. And one of them was, you know, the mafia and did a book on that. Um, But again, I I use that really as an illustration of how my background was really – As far from UFOs as you can get. I was doing investigative reporting on, uh, you know, crime and corruption and cops and uh, war criminals and stuff like that. So, you know, nobody can accuse me of, uh, you know, uh, having an agenda to write about UFOs.
2: But here you are, and you're still uh, digging through the information that is uh, related to the Pentagon. How do you feel about this report that they say is going to come out on June 1st? Have you heard anything more about that?
1: No, we're trying. I mean, I know there's been some comment recently. Uh, uh, I, I'd be very surprised if it comes out June 1st. I think it's going to, you know, as several people have said recently, it's it's uh, um, it may be delayed. There's, there's a lot of work they have to do. Um, and uh, I think it would be a mistake to, to think that, okay, June 1st, suddenly this is going to appear. Uh, I think uh, um, that's a date that was in the original law, you know, mm-hmm. the Defense Appropriation Act that was passed in uh, December, uh, so right. you count 180 days, you know, and say, okay, June 1st, but uh, I don't think um, uh, that's written in stone at all, and I think they can easily get an extension, and everything in the government, you know, slips when it comes to big mm-hmm. things like that, so... Uh, I think it'd be a mistake to say June first we're going to have the answers. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's, you're probably right. Un- unfortunately, you're probably right. <laughs> yeah. But also, I have to be I'm sure that. The, yeah, exactly. It's hard to be after all this time, uh, watching this phenomenon, knowing about the phenomenon. I've experienced some of it. Now, what about you? Have you seen a UFO? Have you had any personal experience with this?
1: Uh, good question. Uh, no. I have not um I have like John Mack uh, he never saw a UFO he never went through an abduction um and he said he was a little disappointed because he was hearing so much about these experiences he was dying to you know see it firsthand but these things don't appear to the people who want it to 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 appear to as a matter of fact that's one of the interesting things about this phenomenon that um it appears to some, or it happens or appears to some people and not to other people. And I know there are accounts of people being able to call in UFOs and things like that, but Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that the world is divided into people who've had these experiences and people who haven't. And there's no rhyme or reason that we can find, uh, except that uh, the um, people who've had abduction experience, they, they seem to run in a family. So if a grandmother had it, then the mother, and then the children, and then the grandchildren. So for some reason, that seems to be a pattern. But um, uh, it it never happened to John Mack. Uh, He never saw a UFO, neither have I. And I think the people who are investigating this phenomenon, as as I've heard researchers say, should look at the people who haven't had experiences along with the people who have, because Mm. uh, there might be some clue there as to what's going on. but it, it is very mysterious. Um, so to answer your question, no. But I did have one experience that was I, I wrote about um, that, that really uh, set me back a little bit. Um, I recently wrote an article for the New York Times on Robert Bigelow, uh, who was oh, a big yeah, supporter. Bob Bigelow. Of, you know, Bob Bigelow. He supported John Mack. He, um, he's a contractor with, uh, he has a, a module attached to the International Space Station. Um, and he, uh, he financed a big poll for, uh, you know, for, for his experiencers for John Mack and Bud Hopkins. So he was, he's very, and, and of course he ran Skinwalker Ranch, um, yeah. which is a, you know, a portal, it looked like, for paranormal activity, I an mean, amazing story. So um, uh, Bob Bigelow is now uh, funding an afterlife, a contest for the best proof of an afterlife. So he's offering up more than a million dollars in prizes for people who come up with the best, um, you know, proof of an afterlife or the best uh, evidence, let's say.
2: Yes, I saw that. So I I wrote a, yes,
1: I wrote a story in the Times and I put this in the story that uh, one night I was in bed and I was wrestling with the story and how am I going to tell it and, you know, what about the afterlife and, uh, you know, how do I start the story and, you know, the, whatever a writer does, wrestling with organizing the material, and suddenly about 5 o'clock in the morning, there's a tremendous explosion in the bedroom. uh woke me up, and woke up the dog, woke my wife up, and we saw that the uh, terrace, the 12, our 12th floor terrace door had exploded. What? Um, the, the glass had completely shattered. Uh, oh, my God. and God. Uh, as if something had hit it. And, I mean, it sounded like an impact on the glass, and then we saw the glass was spiderweb with cracks, the entire um, the entire glass. So people said, well, maybe a bird hit it. Well, I didn't see any birds. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Maybe a, a pellet, but we're 12 floors up, so, you know, I don't think a pellet hit it. I don't think a rock from a car, you know, hit it. I don't know what hit it. Maybe there was an imbalance in the air pressure between the thermopanes, possible. Uh, I don't know, Uh, but uh, it it struck me as a very strange experience, and it got my attention. (laughs) Oh, Um, I can't even imagine.
2: Gosh, waking Uh, up to that.
1: uh, It was very loud. It really was loud. It was like a a, a giant hand had slammed the window. Um, And again, uh, it could have been just, uh, you know, pressure building between the panes that I didn't realize it, but it happened to choose the time when I was working on this article and, and agonizing over it five o'clock in the morning. So um, you know, I don't want to make too much of it, but it it, it was real, it happened, and I don't know why.
0: Certainly caused very... a thought. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. Gosh, yeah. It's very startling. Um so you never did find out what caused it then?
1: No, no. I mean, you know, the guy came to fix the pain and said, yeah, sometimes it happens, you know, but um, I don't know. Uh, Yeah, I I spent enough time with, you know, John Mack's uh, story and the experiences to know that uh, it's a strange world. There are things that are not easily explained. Um, uh, I don't believe that, uh, you know, we live in a totally three-dimensional universe. That's it. You know, everything is uh, everything that exists we can see smell taste touch you know uh that right. i think that there are things out there that we don't understand physics is always coming up with uh, new finds new particles we don't know what makes up 95% of the universe um we don't know all the laws of the universe we don't know how the universe started as a matter of fact um i have a quote in my book by Stan Graff i thought it was great he said Never mind aliens. You know, where did this table come from? Where did this chair come from? Where did anything come from?
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. So when you
1: start to think about it, you know, why are we here? Um, oh, uh, good so, point.
2: So, uh, yeah. yeah, I love that. That's fantastic. I love that. That's great. It's just, it's yeah. wonderful.
0: Of-
2: now, did, have you ever had a chance to interview Bob Bigelow because it's, it's rumored that he has some alien technology in his buildings there in Nevada.
1: Well, I, I did, you know, for this um, uh, afterlife story, I did. I did interview him. Uh, and there's certain things he'll, you know, I'll tell you a funny thing. In the article that I wrote, you'll see the quote. I asked him a question. Uh, I forgot about what, but one of the many paranormal things he's working on. And he said, there are some things I'll talk about and there's some things I won't talk about.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh when you ask him about certain things, I mean he uh, uh you know, he was a contractor for uh for the government, uh he he did a lot of research, uh he won't talk about a lot of stuff. Um you know, he's not he he's not an arm of the government, he's not um subject to FOIA requests. Uh, um the the uh, Skinwalker stuff is, is out there. I mean there was a great film, a great book by George Knapp and and and, and Calm Kelleher. Yes, uh yes, it's an extraordinary yes. story. I mean Skinwalker yes. is, is really one of the great mysteries of all time.
2: Um
1: it is. but so I don't know, I'd like to know about Bigelow secrets.
2: Uh, yeah, he's he's really he's really on the cutting edge with a lot of things and I really respect what he's doing and how he handles a lot of things with the press. Because in his 60 Minutes interview, I, it really, yeah. I'm sure, that you know that moment, right, what I'm talking about here when the reporter yeah. said I something about where know. are yeah. they or whatever, and he said, they're right under your yeah. noses. I was like, yeah. good <laughs> for you, Bob. No, he
1: makes no bones. And she said, uh, uh, aren't you afraid of, uh, of coming out and you know saying they believe in aliens? And he said, uh, no, I don't care. Right. Um, so uh, no, he's been very uh, honest about that, and uh, um, yeah, I'm always troubled by the question. You know, do, what do you believe? Do you believe this? Do you believe that? And when people ask, "Do you believe in UFOs?" Uh, that that I think is a silly question because UFOs exist. You don't believe in them like you know. Do you believe in God? I mean, it's like saying, "Do you believe in the moon? Um, do you believe in?" <laughs> yes. in, in, in do You believe right. you believe in the ocean. Uh, I they mean, are. UFOs are there. We don't yes. know what they are, but uh, objects are there. So, um, and that's a little different from aliens, because we don't have the same level of verification uh, uh, about alien life.
2: No, we don't. And, But these kinds of things, do they keep you up at night? Do you, Do you think about your own theories when it comes to this?
1: Well, um, I guess it doesn't keep me up at night. I have a lot lot of things to think about, very earthbound (laughs) things, like other other stories I want to work on and things like that. But uh, it does, I mean, the the whole subject haunts me for sure, and I think John Mack's work haunts me. And I think um, the fact that uh, no one has been able to um, really come to grips with this mystery is, uh, you know, it never leaves me alone. I mean, I, I always think about that. Um, I, I think the chances that we'll resolve these questions, you know, soon, uh, not likely. Um, and it's, that is very troubling because these, these issues are, are haunting, and yet we may never know.
2: Yeah, we may not. I mean, here are these things flying around in our skies, performing maneuvers that we can barely even imagine. So there's right. no way we can even come close with our technology, with what they are doing. Right. So, yeah, it's and I, I really like how you you bring this up, that it's like believing in the ocean or the moon. It, that's exactly right. And all these people that are still skeptical, I don't get it. But
1: Yeah, I mean, UFOs are... Just the name itself shows, uh, uh, you know, uh, how easy it is to acknowledge what they are. They are unidentified. We don't have to say what they are. But the fact that there are unidentified things flying around, that is a given.
2: Yes. You can't question that anymore. We just can't.
1: Yeah, no, that's ridiculous. And, you know, (laughs) the the people who, including a Harvard, a very famous Harvard uh, uh, astronomer named Donald Menzel, uh, who was an eminent astronomer early in Max's career in the '50s he wrote a book debunking UFOs. Um, I mean, they went to extraordinary lengths to find so-called natural explanations for for UFOs that they're car reflections of car headlights or atmospheric inversions or balloons. Gas. I mean, yeah. <laughs> gas. I mean, they they <laughs> turned themselves into pretzels trying to explain these things (laughs) and yes some some were some were naturally explainable no doubt lights and satellites and planes and but um uh, you know you get all these reports together and forget it i mean it's real
2: that's right oh my goodness well ralph thank you so much for joining us for a wonderful evening and again the name of the book you guys got to go out and get it and read it there is so much in this book. It is called The Believer, Alien Encounters, Hard Science, and the Passion of John Mack. Terrific book. And again, and now, thank fabulous. you. Thank you so it much. Definitely. We fabulous. really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you, ladies. It was really a great pleasure, Pat and Pat. So uh, uh, we really covered a lot of ground. It was really illuminating and very exciting for me to be here. Thank you.
2: Thank you, and good luck with the rest of your work on this project with the Pentagon. We will look for your articles. So next (laughs) week, everybody, we will be back with another show. Again, it's Dr. Weber talking about a leading-edge breakthrough for health and wellness. Don't miss it. Until then, see you on the Blue Highway. Good night, everyone. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernatural.